Hear ye, hear ye. Howdy, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back, or welcome to the King of the Ride podcast. I'm your host, I am Ted King, and you are in store for another great episode. Now, everybody has stories, and Peter Vollers, our guest today, definitely has stories. A former U.S. national team member back a few decades ago, a national road race champion, an aspiring self-described country squire with his successful law practice in quaint Woodstock, Vermont. Peter is a cycling mentor, a coach. He established the Killington Mountain School cycling program. And as an advocate for all things cycling, he soon realized after taking the role at KMS that he had a greater, broader reach. He could spread the gospel of cycling that much further if he could promote a well-done event rather than working class by class. So Peter is now perhaps best known as the owner-operator of the Vermont Overland, a perennial sold-out event, definitely a highlight of my yearly to-do list. So Peter and I are going to talk events, entrepreneurship, the positive and negative externalities of small-town living. But let me first give some context to this podcast because it is highly entertaining how this all goes down. With the exception of our last episode done with Bobby Wintle, All of our King of the Ride pods are done live and in person, face-to-face, side-by-side. So meeting up with Peter before his Vomar ride, that is the Vermont Overland Maple Adventure ride, he had some work to do for the ride itself, and I therefore got to ride shotgun, literally, while he did this work. So this podcast takes place in his Land Rover, where he's leading a team of six other Land Rovers as we plow the literal trail through knee-deep spring snow to get the ride ready for the next day for the Vomar mm, Muddy Spectacular. Therefore, let's acknowledge some things. One, his truck is loud. It makes some very funny noises, hisses, pops, fizzes, etc. Two, we are driving the gnarliest road you've ever seen. These are Vermont's mm, unmaintained trails, although technically called roads. And better vernacular, it's called Vermont Pave or Class 4. These roads are bumpy as all get out. We are driving at maybe three miles an hour tops, and they're still making it tough to keep the microphone near our mouths. As such, we bob and weave through the woods. Please pardon any strange acoustics throughout this episode. Number three, other noises include Ansel, my friend and the videographer for the Grow Do Kansas series. He is snapping pictures throughout the ride from the back seat. And number four, Violet the Wonder Dog. Peter's, I believe, Jack Russell Terrier is sitting in my lap throughout this episode. And Violet is hilarious. So, all Vermont rides, they tick off what it, what it is to harness this, this energy. It's, it's camaraderie. It's these great roots. It's amazing roads. It's tasty food and delicious beer. So what... Heidi and Anthony have done to build Rasputitsa, which is going on mm, this past weekend. Arlen and his event, the Raid Lamoille, Kip at the Muddy Onion. The list goes on. Peter's definitely in that crew. It's, it's race promoters beyond this region, too. It's this amazing community of race promoters that I'm loving getting uh, the ability to talk to. So we have Mark from SPT Gravel. Jim, Christy, and Leland from Dirty Kanza, Bobby out at Land Run, Rebecca Rush of RPI. They've all been incredibly helpful in helping Laura and me build Rooted Vermont. And Laura and I have been tremendously lucky to do so many events, and therefore we are taking the best of the best. 
the best food, the best gravel, the best landscape and terrain. We are we're excited. We're we're thrilled that we just locked in Lawson's finest liquids. Hello, sip of sunshine, Shaxbury cider for the tastiest post-ride beverages around. Justin Walker has agreed to bring his award-winning team to cook up a literal feast. So let this serve as your friendly reminder that spots are limited. We are nearly at capacity. If it is on your mind to do this event, head to rootedvermont.com and sign up now so that you don't miss the best summer party 2019 has in store. That is August 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. Definitely check that out, rootedvermont.com. And now that the road race season is underway, let's talk cyclocross. Um, First, Jeremy Powers announced his retirement just last week. Congratulations goes out to Jeremy. He and I were nearly teammates on our first professional team. We are the same age. We bumped elbows in our domestic road racing days. Jeremy is a champion. He is a friend, and he is a great person to have a conversation with. I can't encourage you enough to zip back through our recent archives and listen to episode number nine with the one and only Jay Powers. Congrats, Jeremy. I know you're finished racing, but I'm excited to see you out on the road regardless. Uh, Let's continue this cyclocross trend deep into or the early phases of road racing 2019. What Wout Van Aert did at Perry-Roubaix, he unequivocally had the legs to win that race by a country mile. He just didn't have any luck. He had a crash. He had more than a few mechanicals. He did not have much of a team to help him out on that day. I'm sure there were some people getting scolded in some freaky deaky Dutch after that race in the in the yellow lotto kit. And then, of course, Matthew Vanderpoel. Wow. Wow. Um, I mean, it looked like he broke his collarbone mid-race uh, at, at Flanders. And then he battled back to finish fourth, I believe. And then fast forward two weeks. His ride was absolutely bananas at at Amstel. Why people say bananas as an expression instead of apples or grapefruit is beyond me, but his ride at Amstel was simply bananas. He effectively sprints with four or five guys on his wheel, passing two of the strongest guys around who are in the lead in Fugosang and Alaphilippe. He sprints for 1,200 meters. Sheesh. And this goes to show... And I mean this for all the classics this year. Watching this year's spring campaign, we've been witness to just how beat the guys are who are going on to finish among the single-digit placings, but not first, second, or third. The guys getting dropped from the very, very best and finishing, say, fifth, sixth, seventh, so forth. You see them absolutely toast, and the guys who are winning just have something left in the tank. And you might say, yeah, duh, that's obvious, Ted. But... Somehow it is exacerbated this spring. Typically in the finale, you turn the TV on, you see that everybody is strong and there's a simple, who's the fastest sprinter in the group and that person's going to win. Usually everyone's still looking strong in the end, but recently it's just been the top one, two or three guys, which, you know, truly is no wonder since they're smashing themselves for five, six, seven hours in these races. These races are long folks. Just because they're on TV or the computer for two hours, don't forget they were hammering the previous four. And also don't forget, when you see fifth place, when you see Peter Sagan getting dropped, like think of the other 185 guys riding in behind him. These races are brutal. The classics are extraordinary. They are so much fun to watch. 
Anyway, so keep watching these two, Van Art, Vanderpool. They're jumping from one-hour races to six-hour races with ease. And now let's extend this commentary. I've tried to stress to friends and fans and, and folks paying attention to Dirty Kanza this year just how much firepower is coming to the start line in Emporia at DK. Now, of course, all eyes are going to be on EF Education first, as they are the only world tour team with a representation at DK. But then beyond that, the number of domestic pro teams showing up is extraordinary. And when I bring this up, it's met with this dismissive, yeah, but they don't have the distance in their legs, Ted, don't worry about it, which I just have to laugh at because these guys are training and living and racing a full-fledged life as a pro cyclist. Now, to make it as a domestic pro, that takes a lifetime of hard work, discipline, regimen, regime, diet, all these things that I did once upon a time many moons ago. European professionals, it's that plus a little bit extra, a bigger VO2, a higher lactic threshold, plus a dash of luck. They're all physiologically gifted. And to borrow an amazing expression I heard once, these guys are training like madmen and eating like squirrels. Let me reiterate, there will be a lot of horsepower at DK, unlike anything we've seen before. Professional road racers, cyclocross racers, mountain bike racers. My simple point is this. I am thrilled to have a massive throwdown and test everyone's limits on June 1st. If, however, it becomes a test of who has the strongest or biggest or most tactful team, I think that simply defeats the purpose of a gravel race. Plain and simple, we will see op-ed over. Now, last but certainly not least, I want to thank our sponsor, our friends at Icor, are helping bring you this King of the Ride episode. Icor is a clean, natural source of recovery-enhancing hemp extract. They design their products with athletes in mind, and their goal is to protect your body from the stresses of training, improve recovery from intense efforts, and maintain a positive mental state. You can experience meaningful improvements in your well-being through small lifestyle changes, which is why I appreciate the benefits of sleep, relaxation, and mindfulness. Head over to icorlabs.com, I-K-O-R-L-A-B-S.com and save 15% by using the code King of the Ride. That is all one word at checkout. Folks, that is it for now. Please enjoy this episode of King of the Ride podcast with Peter Vollers. up to speed like what are we what are we doing right now Where- so this is this is the most crucial part of vomar so vomar i every single year ted i say i'm not going to do vomar anymore and the reason is is because we are dealing with body blows of unexpected last minute conditions with the weather because this is in march late march in vermont yep and it just is like I had everything dialed this week. I was telling everybody what bike to ride. I was telling everybody what the roads are going to be like. And then, boom, we end up getting three to four inches of sloppy snow last mm-hmm. night, which is now... And then we got some colder temperatures, so that kind of is being tenacious enough to pack down on the roads. Um, but what we do, what we have to do for um, Vomar 
is we got to pack the class four roads, the pave sectors. And mm-hmm. that's always, you know, Vermont Overland is synonymous with class four roads in Vermont. It always has been in every way. And so we include them in all of our events. We just leave it. We're turning right. Heading back to the trail, right? That's right, Laz. Go ahead. We're heading back. We're going back uh, south. Over. Over. So, so with, with Vomar, it's particularly the, the need for preparing the trails is acute because the trails, the Class 4 roads are not maintained, so they are covered with snow. And actually, the one we just did, Pave Sector 2, has literally four-foot drifts. Yeah, how's that? So it's just crazy because it all groups up at the end of this pasture, this wind-swept pasture, and today was very windy. Well, also, the, the irony is, I believe, I mean, I'm going to witness it as we drive out to the course. Now, the Class 4 is actually going to be the cleanest section from a from a filthy bike standpoint. Is that correct? And I'm saying that as we're from now, we're transitioning from pavement to dirt road, which is potholed, filthy, muddy, sloppy fun. It, it is amazing you've already made that assessment because that was the first thing Ansel and I said to each other when we got off of, we. I mean, the, the Pave Sector 2 looks perfect. It yeah. is like clean, white, packed, easily rideable snow. Beauty. And as soon as we got back on the actual maintained roads, like the trucks were all over the place. They're they're sloppy. They're muddy. Foul. It's it's slush. It's snow. It's everything. It's ice. It's you know you name it. It's got it. Okay, so let's set the scene. It is um, what is it? March twenty second, twenty third. Today is March twenty third. Tomorrow is March twenty fourth, which is Vomar, the Vermont Overland Maple Adventure Ride. Hit me. What is Vomar? Vomar is, is, is actually one of our oldest events. It's, uh, it's one of our oldest cycling events. I, we started it the year before we started the Overland, and it basically is a celebration of the maple sugaring time of year in Vermont. We always do it at the Vermont Sugar Makers Open House Weekend. The irony of all that is is that when you go around the state for this weekend every single year, Almost every every year, the sugar makers are not actually boiling anything because sure. the weather is not cooperating for it, for sugar to be boiled and for you have to have sap flowing uh-huh. and unless you saved it and but the uh, sap to be flowing needs to have very very cold nights and very very warm days and we just don't have that yet in March. We usually have it's it's not enough disparity. It's a it's a cold night followed by. You know, like a, a sub-freezing night, like 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 high twenties, followed by a mid-thirties day, which is mm-hmm. just not going to do it. Um, yeah, two, no, three days ago, I was out with the Slopeside boys, uh, out until about eleven o'clock at night, boiling, making a couple hundred gallons that evening, um, and then yeah, we've had a little bit of a cold snap since then. As we speak, it's kind of it's kind of perfect now because it is warming up. The sun certainly helps as it cooks down in the trees midday. Um, but yeah, it is cool that this, what'd you call it? The maple open house weekend. It is a statewide thing. It's a new England wide thing. It's going on over in New Hampshire also. Um, far out. Okay. Well, so you, you, you just hit on it. The Overland, which is perhaps your best known event. Totally. Uh, uh, I shouldn't say perhaps it is the best known event. Um, give me a chicken and egg scenario. What happened first? You with uh, the Land Rover crew doing overland activities or doing bicycle activities in this capacity, in the hosting capacity? It's funny. It, it's kind of merged, but I definitely, you know, as you know, I was a, I was a, I was the last time I actually was an elite cyclist was when I was a junior in the 1980s, which which we say, are going to tap into. Yeah, someone say intended. that's that's the heyday of junior cycling and uh-huh. really even pro cycling in the U.S. A lot of a lot of people say so. 
I came up in that era, so I've, I've been a lifelong cyclist, but really the dirt road thing, the whole gravel thing grew organically out of my coaching the Killington Mountain School team. And I got into coaching because I just, my son was riding at the time and I wanted him to have a, a team. And we also wanted to be able to do the New England Prep School League, which is arguably one of the best racing leagues in the whole country, both mm-hmm. road and mountain biking. Big time. So we needed to be part of a school to to be able to compete in the Prep School League. And actually you don't need to, one of the changes I made to that league is now you don't need to be part of a school team anymore. You can just be, you can be a kid who's homeschooled and still do Prep School League. But At which we, point you, you would affiliate with a school in order to be brought into a team, actually, so to speak? Yeah, you don't even need to be a team. You can just be a guy out there that says homeschool on the jersey or anything you want to do. <laughs> That's and so rad. Just trying to be really inclusive, and they're yep. great with that. Okay. So that was part of it, but I was training with all these kids who were brand new. Ansel, who's in the, who's riding in the in the uh, cot, it's yep. C-O-T cot in the back of my truck, which is what <laughs> I sleep in while we're doing this podcast. Ansel was one of the first kids on the team. And he was a ski racer at KMS, and all the other kids were ski racers. Yeah, he is the same age as your son? One year older. One year older. Yeah. Um, so he's one year older than my son, Key. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. Gotcha. So so he's there, and I've got all these alpine ski racers who are in very good shape but don't know anything about cycling. And we're riding down the paved roads trying to train, and I am just getting anxiety attacks of fear that they're, we're going to get hit. Yeah. And it got so bad on one ride, I just said, guys, make a right. And the next right, I don't care where it is, just make a right, and we'll get off the paved roads. And there's so few relatively should preface this by saying in Vermont, 70% of the roads are dirt. Uh-huh. And the Which is of, also ironic yeah. that... You're even having uh, uh, traffic issues there here in Vermont. I mean, like, I think Vermont is one of the safest areas to ride in terms of having uh, bicycle automobile relations, but it's absolutely a concern, especially when you're riding with relatively newbie kids. Absolutely. And most of our paved roads are state highways. Yes. So people really aren't expecting to see cyclists out there, and it just doesn't doesn't go us. It's okay when you're riding alone, maybe, or with one or two people, right, but right. it's hard when you've got people, a group of people. So we turned onto the, onto the dirt roads, and we're like, wow. All of a sudden, the kids were socializing, but they were also riding very hard. The hills were steeper. Uh-huh. The descents were more technical. And I said, this is the way to go. And this is when we were brand new. And I said, well, let's go and what bike can we ride that's going to yeah. make this a little easier? I was going to ask what kind of bikes we were had, you on? We what had you no guys? gravel, but we okay. had cyclocross. And I was like, well, I'm planning on having you guys do cyclocross anyway. So we all bought cyclocross bikes like in May. Mm-hmm. And and we sure enough, we rode on those all, all summer long. And we, I don't think we really rode the road besides some... some when the, the kids got so good so fast that before long I was actually motor pacing Brendan Rim and Ansel <laughs> behind yeah. the car. And uh-huh. this was with, within like three months of them starting cycling. It was incredible, the progression. And uh, so that was about the only time we rode on pavement. Every other time we rode on dirt. And then we went through the year, did that for five years, and we created the sustainable program at KMS. That can We have a professional coach now. And, and at that point, and all my kids had really graduated and gone off to jobs in college and stuff like that. So... I was like, wow, I really, and I realized that there's such potential and it was, this is happening simultaneously all around the country. People are saying, let's take to the dirt. Let's ride on dirt roads. And for me being this, you know, sort of like, I can't help myself sharer of experiences. The, uh, I'm compulsive about it. The, I, I just said, well, why don't we have a race? Wouldn't it be cool to have a badass race that's on dirt roads? And uh-huh. this is happening literally. You've got Rasputitsa who had, who had, had the Dirty 40 uh-huh. event the year before mine. So I can't say I was nowhere near one of the first pioneers of this. We had D2R2 
mm-hmm. you know, the, the, uh, the Deerfield ride that's been going on for well over a decade in Massachusetts that's on dirt roads. But it was like, wow, this really makes sense now to be doing this and pursuing this. And that was when we started the Overland. Which, sorry, what year was that? 2013. Okay. Yep. Um, and how about, I do want to get into your history in cycling. Well, let's just certainly begin there because we'll go chronologically from this point. You are from the Jersey Shore, if I'm not mistaken. Jersey Shore, man. Which is funny because now that I've gotten to know you, you are are not what I would picture the Jersey Shore. (laughs) Do you ever watch the Jersey Shore program? I do, and it's funny because (laughs) in really, in real life, the Jersey Shore, especially the northern part of the Jersey Shore, is such a ridiculously affluent area. I could never afford to live there in my adult life. Uh And it's it there's way more people who are like, you know, Wall Street investment bankers living on the northern part of the Jersey Shore now than anybody like uh, like that's on the Jersey Shore show. That uh-huh. is certainly there is, there are certain pockets of areas on the shore that are further south that are like that, but yeah. and don't don't get me wrong. I mean, those places are fun to go to. We would go there as kids where when we were high school students and stuff and and uh, you know, back like really back then in the, in the early 80s, the drinking age was, well, just, it had been 21 the whole time when I was young, but my brother, who was four years ahead of me at Christian Brothers Academy, which is a big high school down there, um, he was able to go out at 18 and go down to those same bars that were on the Jersey Shore. And let me tell you, they are fun. <laughs> it's a blast. So your brother paved the way for uh, what the Jersey Shore has become. Um, totally. One of my very good friends from college was from North Jersey, and as we currently are driving through horse country in Vermont, uh, he was from horse country, New Jersey, which the riding was absolutely spectacular. Yes. Um, so, okay, you're from Jersey. You get into cycling as a junior, the heyday, the golden era of, of junior cycling. You take that ultimately to a collegiate national title, if I'm not mistaken? I did. I did. In the, uh, that took some time, though. So basically, New Jersey, just so people know, New Jersey is an awesome place to race bikes and certainly was in the 80s it was a hotbed we had we had legendary cyclists as coaches all over the place we had jim grill who trained under eddie b he was my coach and i was on the i was on the famous at the time the team getty it was actually sponsored by john paul getty of getty oil the getty the getty junior team which had been really an elite team and we had greg janone on the team who won the tour of somerville as a junior twice we had really elite riders and um, it was a great team because it was right on my doorstep. And plus, we had the velodrome. So we were not far. We're two hours from the Lehigh County velodrome. So we all grew up going every Tuesday night, hopping in the car and carpooling and picking up our friends to and from going to race, you know, scratch races and missing outs and points races and stuff huh. at the velodrome. So it was just awesome. Plus, we had a huge cyclocross scene, which I did not do, but that was huge in New Jersey as far as it can be in the, in the early 80s. Nice. So it was just, and we had the Tour of Somerville. We had famous, famous races, Tour of Nutley. We actually had criteriums in pretty much every small town, especially in northern New Jersey. Okay. And even Philadelphia, we had the Core States Pro Championship, which was budding and really becoming famous at that point. And it almost we sounds like surrounded. Jersey circa 1980s is like Belgium now totally. with the local clubs, oh, yeah. the, the number of uh, uh, races on any given weekends. You know, we had Dave Chonner, Mike Frazy was a legendary guy in cycling. Uh, not to mention, these, there were all sorts of guys who, who rode in the 70s and 60s in that area, which were, you know, we just don't hear about them now, but they were, they were you know, famous, famous riders. And don't forget, even in the early part of the 20th century, Madison Square Garden, which many yeah. people don't know, was built as a cycle. Hey, Peter, are you there? Sorry, guys, I'm doing a podcast. <laughs> Over. So we're, 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 
Over. So we were. Uh, How many riders are expecting for the race? Guys, sorry, I'm on a podcast. So uh, <laughs> I can turn it down if they keep going. So we can edit all that out. We were. Uh, you know, the Madison Square Garden was built for six-day racing, and, mm-hmm. and so it was just a real, all that legacy went through to the 80s, and we had this sort of perfect storm of um, of a cycling, a place to develop, and I had been state champion in my second or third year, and then that was when I made Team Getty, and then what I did is I went to a winter camp at the Olympic Training Center, which was the big thing to do as juniors, is to, you had to apply be accepted for your results. Then I went to the winter camp and I trained for this. And a lot of guys didn't, but I had some inside scoop that I knew that there was gonna be a dastardly ergometer test. <laughs> and I was fit. I was racing, mid, mid-season racing fit for this ergometer test and, I, and all the fitness testing and I placed second. And I was asked to come back right away to become a permanent resident. And it was like, this is not uncommon with the elite level cyclists, but for me, it was pretty, pretty special thing. And so I was able to go and live at the Olympic Training Center and, and train there in 1985, which was a dense time for juniors. I mean, we had el- tons and tons of juniors racing in the country. You know, we had Roy Nickman and Craig Schomer and just like, the, I can name a thousand kids who ended up being elite level pros later you really on. Really, to tick off names is very impressive. I have a terrible ability in that regard, but maybe that... <laughs> Goes on to benefit you in your current profession. Yeah. Anyway, um, okay, carry on. So, so we, you know, junior racing was great, and I ended, I did end up the end all for junior racing. Even today, I think is making the junior worlds team. So I huh. trained really hard and did well in all of that in all of the uh, trials for junior worlds. And I went to junior worlds at, in Stuttgart, Germany, and like guys like Mario Cipollini are there. <gasps> he's he's like exactly my age. His birthday was yesterday and my birthday was Tuesday in 1967 so we're both 52 not that that's anything you know Cipollini's birthday Cipollini's also that's crazy trouble right now yeah I was gonna say he's getting his name in the press um did you have a a good bit of support from USAC in going to worlds or I did largely land on you you I really did we had a guy named Craig Campbell who I I caught up with at cross nationals in Hartford a couple years ago he was out with his daughter and Craig was awesome. And Craig had trained under Eddie B. Eddie Barsevich was our master coach. And then he, of course, Eddie B himself came to Junior Worlds and trained us there. And it was, and we had actually, our our group, we had Mike McCarthy, who was a freight train of a mm-hmm. rider, and just unbelievable, still is to this day. And um, David Brinton, who's recently like Masters World Pursuit Champion or something. He just won Worlds in, in stuff. He was one of our motors in the team time trial. So we had three flats, two crashes. Rishi Graywall, Alexi Graywall's son, crashed badly, I remember, but still got back on his bike. I'm uh, not son, his brother. And uh, we ended up getting seventh in the TTT, which was pretty awesome. And we we easily would have would have meddled if we had not had all the mishaps. But it was pouring rain. And we had these ridiculous early funny bikes that pretty much flipped you over the bars if you hit a <laughs> pothole. Yeah. So... Free dick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which leads you at some point to get into collegiate racing, which I think is uh, sort of the current salvation of... Um, as junior racing is not the most thriving scene right now in the States, collegiate racing I think is awesome because it's like hop in, have as much fun as you want, which is also no different than what you're doing with, with high school leagues. But yeah, how do you get into collegiate cycling? Or is it just an obvious so, segue for you? And I was I was like collegiate. I wanted to be a pro like you. I uh-huh. was like, screw this. I want to be a pro. I want to do this. And by the time I really was getting to that point where I could do it, I was like, okay, I still need to go to college a little bit. So I started, actually started college at UMass Amherst because I had some buddies there who were on the cycling team. 
And it turned out to be a really big cycling team there, and it was yeah. very good. And this is in the very late 80s. And so I was still racing regionally. I was on the Mangoni, GS Mangoni team and nice. doing very well. And then, but I was, I was, you know, I was always a very good student, actually. I'd been a good student. So it was a little surprising that I was putting college like on the back burner. Mm-hmm. And then, so I had a very good, very, really good season in the fall of 88. And I said, you know what? For the spring, it would be the first spring semester that I've stayed in, in college. And that was in the spring of 89. And I trained like a bear through that winter. I, and I, I just ended the season super well, and I kept the momentum going. Uh-huh. And I just, I was, un, I was, un, I was a, one of the few riders that's ever done this, but I was undefeated in the Eastern Conference. I won every single race in the Eastern Conference, and I won collegiate nationals. I won the Criterium, and I placed, I got, it was a points race, believe it or not, in the road race. And I ended up, I just got to get in gear here. We're on a Pave sector. This is nuts. Yeah, uh, it's nutty. Not to interrupt, but the circumstances are such that it's worth doing so. We just turned right off an already pretty, what, 20% dirt road, which I thought was the sector. We've turned right, and now we're going to do an actual Vermont Pave sector, which is, uh, it resembles a, what does this resemble to you? This is like, looks like a ski slope right now. <laughs> this is ridiculous. So what you just heard are my differential lockers in the Land Rover locking in, which gives you like unparalleled better traction and and stuff. And I've got my tires aired super low like you would in cyclocross. I've got tires aired to 10 PSI. Uh-huh. And uh, so it's, it doesn't make, we've also pre-run this trail last weekend. So this is much easier than it was in the first pre-runs. So fast forward till tomorrow, is this, once you've sent these half dozen trucks through here, It'll what freeze up a bit tonight. And this oh, will be yeah. rideable. We're gonna we won't leave this at this. Well, by the time we get done with this podcast, this thing is gonna look like, like perfect. It's gonna actually be better than the regular road. So we'll, what I'm doing is I'm just going down the middle. Steve is gonna widen it behind me with his 35 inch tires, uh-huh. also air to 10 psi, and then the smaller trucks will come over and just pack it down. And then we'll take probably 10 swipes at this. Oh wow! Yeah. How? What is gonna work? Um. Okay. Well. Well, we're on topic of tomorrow, for the sake of jumping around and getting out of chronology. Yeah. What do we got tomorrow? We got Volmar. How many How many riders are we expecting? We are at 400 sold out. Sweet. And we usually lose, for any event, we lose about probably 10%. So we'll lose, you know, 40 riders, 50 riders. We'll have 350 on game day mm-hmm. tomorrow actually riding. Mm-hmm. Um, just because people register early or something and they can't make it for whatever reason. But yeah, it was pretty, it's pretty awesome. Last year we only had 300 people. We really expanded it to the maximum we can park in the parking lot at the Escutney Outdoor Center. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then it sold right out, which is just so, for me, it's like one of the most gratifying things is to have enough demand for these events that, that people do, they do fill up, especially at a crazy time of year when most people aren't even thinking about riding outside yet. Sure. So what are the iterations? What has happened to the Vomar over the years? Um, has it always been a Scutney? Has it been a uh, dancing act all throughout the state? Where have you done it? No, it's actually, it's a good question because it has skipped. I've skipped it all over the place. And the main reason is when we first devised this, it was, I was helping out the Woodstock Chamber of Commerce for their Maple Madness weekend. <laughs> and, but the, the theme of it was we were going to stop at a sugar house, have all the riders for the main sag. It's only a 25 mile ride. So you only need one sag stop. Mm-hmm. So we we're going to stop at a legit boiling sugar house. When I say boiling, they're boiling the sap on game day. The problem with that was, is we realized that, like we were talking about before, and Ted knows all too well, is that many times this time of year, no one's actually boiling. So it became harder and harder for me to find a legit sugar house. 
So then I was like, well, I guess we don't really need a sugar house. We just really need maple stuff. And that's when <laughs> we realized we can actually do it right from, well, we, we, do the, we do the event from the Escutney Outdoor Center, mainly because they have one of the few places that has a massive parking lot that's plowed this hmm. time of year. And they plow that specifically. They, they put a lot of time into it. They do have some skiing there, but they only use about a, a third of the parking lot usually. And we've got the full whammy. Is this the same venue as Vermont 50? Yes. Same place as Vermont 50, so many people will recognize it for that. But now for the sugar house, we just stop at my house. So Kim Vollers, my wife, is doing this maple extravaganza. She'll have huh. all sorts of maple-themed food. We'll also, of course, have all of our untapped stuff Most both deaf. aired at the start. And it's just going to be maple, maple, maple all day long. Magnificent. Good grief. I love it already. Um, so 400 people, beautiful day. Spring is going to be kicking. Oh, yes. Full spring form. 47 degrees. 47 degrees of... Awesome job on that pathway center. Did you guys hear that? So I have programmed in <laughs> cues on the ride with GPS. And that we should talk about then. Yeah. Nav. Hey, let's do so it. So I'm going to get right into it. So here's here's my sort of newfound cause of the, of the day. And, and that is that I feel that gravel events have too big of an impact the whole beauty of gravel is that they have minimal impact on the communities through which we ride. Unlike road racing, which usually requires closing roads and really inconveniencing people. We don't do that with gravel, but I want to take it one step further, I said signage. Signage is a massive problem. It's a massive problem for promoters and it's a massive problem for the whole community. So, um, Two mile an hour traffic jam. These ladies, these ladies are going to want to walk their dogs. We got to go make another pass. So, so for self nav, I mean, actually, so it always has bothered me that the um, the fact that we have the sign impact on the communities because we put out these signs and they're everywhere. They're at every turn and everything else. And for people who don't ride bikes and are not part of the event, they're annoyed. They're like, what gives these guys the right to sign a public road? I also and, ironically, or coincidentally maybe, in Vermont, the state that has zero billboards. Like, exactly. Signs are an eyesore. They are an eyesore. They're a form of pollution. And it's, so that was a big part of it. There's also, there is sign sabotage. And I'm, not, I'm gonna yes. be honest with you. This is a major thing. We spend so much time dealing with signs and then checking the signs and we we actually have guys dispatched staff members who will be dispatched a half an hour before the ride starts to make sure that the signs are up and they often are replacing them right to you know our front group with yours truly i mean with, with, with the guy sitting next to me is so flipping fast that <laughs> we we've come very close to catching our sign guy hmm. in the overland and wow. like we're on ham radio and i'm like dude you have got to go they're they're coming right down on you with the two guys that are in this truck right now with ansel and ted you know these guys are going so fast that it becomes a real problem so there's just a ton of logistical issues with it but there's also even there's my biggest thing Gravel is, I'm going to boil this all down for you. No, Do pun, no pun intended. Maple season, boil Maple it down. Maple season, I'm going to boil it all down. Gravel is all about one thing. It's about the tribe. It's about camaraderie. And the reason why it's so popular is because each and every person, whether you're Ted King or the guy who comes in six hours later, feels like he's part of that tribe. They, he feels that, he or she feels like they are part of this group of, of people who all love and support each other. And I know that sounds ridiculously insipidly sweet but it really is another pun thank you but the uh but it but it really is the case and that's what makes it so much different than other forms of of cycling and other forms of racing is that is that gravel is about the community well when you don't have signs you have this thing that happens and it's called camaraderie 
So people will turn to each other on the course, even the front group. They'll be checking. You better believe it. Tomorrow, your group is going to be looking at each other saying, right, left, right. Mm -hmm. You're going to be talking to each other when you normally wouldn't be. And that's a good thing. Because what happens back in the main group where they're going a little bit slower is these guys start really talking to each other. And then they start laughing together. And then they start really, and then they start looking out for each other. And it becomes a form of enhancing the camaraderie, which is all good for everybody in the whole scene. So that's a, that's probably really, to be honest, 70% of the reason why I've gone self-nav. And self-nav is basically in a nutshell, it's ride with GPS. Yep. Um, we use that and I've, I, we have a, we have a, not a really arrangement because they don't do any sponsorship that I know of, but we've talked with the owner of Ride With GPS out in, in Oregon, and he loves what we're doing. I've written a big article on it, and I'm really trying to convince other promoters to go this route, including one who's having, oh, a ride called Rooted Vermont in early <laughs> August. But what, I, think he, I think he needs to actually see how it goes first, which is fair enough. So I mean, anyway, well, that's yes. it. It, it's a funny balance there because, um, you know, there's there's sort of this back-to-basics route, that group that says have a cue sheet, don't carry a GPS, don't have any sort of computer on your handlebars. I'm a firm believer in having a GPS. I think it's, oh, yeah. you know, a great mark technology modern technology. Uh, no sense in being a total Luddite out there. Right. Um, man, but that's a very cool point driving home what's great about cycling, which certainly is the, the community and the camaraderie and the shared love and suffering and getting all to the finish together. I've never heard the connection being made through signage, but it's it's indisputable. Um, it happened last week when we were at Land Run. Um, you know, start with what nearly two thousand people, and by the time we were down to a group of three, we're still we're talking to each other about where to go. Yeah. Like I don't want to. I don't want to do. You know, I am riding with a uh, Garmin. These other two breakaway companions do not have a Garmin, so I'm telling them where to go as much here. as anything. Yeah. Um, yeah, you don't want to win on the stupid formality or, or have somebody go off course and have something horrific happen. Interesting. So, okay. Well, we'll see how it goes, man. Sure. This is, this is the guinea pig tomorrow, and it could be an absolute disaster. So fingers are crossed, but I could have 100 angry people coming back to the venue not happy. Well, we'll the see. worst thing that happened in that scenario is that <laughs> Violet just attacked a branch. <laughs> yeah. The worst thing that happens in that scenario is they're upset because they're having a taco 10 minutes late, but the reality is, go eat and enjoy your tacos. How much was the creation of VO and the Maple Ride a desire to build community? This is a pre-gravel era when you're doing this even a, uh, a decade ago or half decade ago, I mean. That's another fabulous question. It was something I was trying to get to with the KMS team talk. The KMS team, what I noticed, and I had grown up with this incredible, like, you, if you did not enter for a junior race pre-register, which had to do, of course, through the mail, when I was a kid, you didn't get in. I mean, they filled. Nowadays, we're lucky to have 150 kids overall at nationals, mm -hmm. you know, much less in one criterion. Mm -hmm. So what I saw over time was there was just this lag. People were just not racing, you know, and people weren't getting into the sport. And I wanted to get into coaching to really have an effect on that, have a positive effect on that. But I, but then I realized, I mean, I can, and I did have a positive effect on, and I've got pretty much all my kids are still cycling, some, some elite, some not. But what I realized with gravel is like, wow, I, if I promote events, gravel is such a great way to get people into the sport who have never really 
done anything like this before. They may have raced, they may have ridden, but mm -hmm. they, or they, or they may not have. They may be the first time on a bike, but you don't, the barriers to entry are almost nothing. You can ride in a normal gravel event, like not Pave, like mine, but in a normal gravel event, you can ride any bike. You can, you can not have a license and you just pay your fee, you show up and you're doing it. And it doesn't matter whether you, in fact, it's even cooler if your bike is old and kind of shitty. It's like, you don't need to be elite in any way. And that's what I realized, what a great way to support cycling in general. So here's an interesting juxtaposition to that. You are a product of USAC junior development. I got into cycling as about a 19 year old, yep. but through the road racing scene, through racing crits and stage races right. in a pre-gravel era. There's part of me that's very nostalgic for that and, and wanting the downtown crits and wanting to see kids get into cycling and take it as far as they can from a competitive standpoint. Certainly gravel is welcoming, like you say, of, of anybody, of any ability, of any bike style. So there's the huge welcoming capacity to it. What do you see going forward as the future? Will gravel broadly sweep up road cycling entirely? Is road cycling going to be cyclical and it's going to be back in a short period or some other option three that we don't yet know? I do think it's going to sweep it up. I think your first option one is it. And we're already seeing like, what, are we, what is it, EF, EF, EF Education, education first. is doing these, doing these gravel events. And I don't know whether, no one knows whether they're going to do, the, they weren't at Land Run, obviously, but they're, nope. you know, they're going to be doing, what, Kansas? They're going to be they'll doing? They'll do Kansas, they'll do Leadville, and I think one or two other. Yeah, so it's, it's already happening where they're realizing the value of these events. I mean, you know, Ted, in your own circumstance, it's like, I have to venture to say that you are far more well-known today to the common person on the street as the best gravel rider in the country than you are, um, than you, than you were as a, even as a world tour pro, you know? So, I mean, I think like certainly in my world, you know, you are a household name and that could just be because I'm involved with gravel. But to answer your question, I really feel, I feel that the, it's gotten to the point now with downtown, um, areas just not being friendly to cycling and not really caring about cycling and even road racing being so hard to promote and having so many constraints. Mm -hmm. I just don't feel it's sustainable. I really don't. I feel that in Europe it is and mm -hmm. other pockets, certainly Australia, other pockets of the world. Absolutely. But in the, in the, in the, in this country, it's always been a fringe sport. And I think that's only gotten worse. And now we've got to deal with, and we, you know, we've had to deal with for many years, even through my whole coaching experience, which really hurt our team, the doping thing. And, and it's like, you've, you've got this, you've got the stigma attached to the sport at that level too. And all of that seems to be gone in gravel. Like people are going to give a, if you want to dope, dope, who cares? And it's like, but it, people aren't doing it. It's just, it, well, maybe they are doing it in well, some that's of what, your races, but well, that's, that's what I sort of. I'm curious about the hyper-competitive nature of the, that gravel is going yeah. with World Tour teams. With there's certainly EF is not the only pro team; they're the only World Tour team. But there are pro domestic teams who are coming to Kanza and the like. We live in a machismo world where yeah, no one wants to get dropped. Someone wants to get better. Someone's gonna ultimately. <laughs> I don't think it's happening now, but I think people will ultimately move uh, towards a questionable decision-making period and maybe start doping in order to win gravel races and I think that would be a shame but certainly the trend now is enough to have peer pressure guilt you out of it yeah um, but without prize money sure is that sure. ever really gonna happen I, I just don't see it so do you think that that also marks 
this is the beginning of the end of Americans racing in Europe? Do you think gravel racing is going to be the segue to go to, you know, you're going to get into Vermont Overland and then in a few more years you're going to be trying to, to jump into a Kermesse and then go to Paris-Nice? Well, I will tell you, it's not Criterion. I mean, it's far from Criterion racing, but so Criterion racing is also very, very different from even Kermesse racing in Europe. And it's like American Criterion racing is really kind of its own thing. But it's but I, gravel racing, I mean... We got it. You have a team car behind you. That's me in the races. You guys are going up these steep climbs. It's very European. I would say, I mean, you, you would, you would. I didn't race enough in Europe. I only, only, only a smattering. But wouldn't you say that gravel racing is like a hard gravel event that's long, is pretty similar to a European road race or no? We just don't have a peloton. Mm. That's the thing. You have no drafting in a peloton, but, but the terrain itself. There's, yeah, it's a huge. Because it's point-to-point. Uh, point. It's one of the few things that are grand ronde. Sure. You know? It's a huge physiological undertaking, so there's no difference from a physiology standpoint of taking on a 100-mile gravel race as and opposed to 100-mile. it's not team-based. Right, so. right, right. That'll be very interesting. I mean, I don't... But I do think it could be. I think you can do these hard gravel events that are brutally hard and, and be able to perhaps go over and, and have a career. But I do, I honestly do feel like uh, can people have sustainable careers because we've already ansel and i have talked about it before and it's it's and you know it as well as anybody is it really a sustainable path to say i want to be a pro road bike racer these days yeah and it's hard for me to even i mean you you made it work and, and ted one of the things that you did which was noticeable was palpable from an early stage is that we knew who you were yeah. You were not relying upon results to get notoriety and to allow and to, and to increase your fan base. You were writing stories. You were writing articles. You were sharing on social media. And we all became, you know, we all became sort of addicted to your story at that point because it, you didn't have to. Like the Tour de France thing, when you were racing against the time limit, <laughs> my God, I mean, that was one of the best stories in cycling. Yeah. That was incredible. And it had nothing to do with having to win races. And you were, I think you were really one of the pioneers in creating a personality as a pro cyclist. But that carries over beautifully now into your into your gravel career. And I see that as a sustainable path. I really do. And, and you've got a business, you've got successful businesses going and you've got all this other stuff. So that, if I were gonna advise juniors again, that's mm -hmm. the path I'd advise them on is have an education or mm -hmm. you know have a good business and 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 but still be a badass cyclist at the same time for me that's cooler than being a full-time pro wicked well that's what's great about gravel now is it it caters to the every man the every woman it's a it's the perfect weekend warrior yet hyper competitive weekend warrior activity where does the trucking business fit in when did when did oh yeah Vermont Overland Truck Company start. So and, and we, first, yeah, explain what I mean yeah. when I say so truck Overland, company. the whole Vermont Overland thing. Actually, the name of that really, the overlanding thing is another huge trend in the country for it's called it's really gentlemen's jeeping. So we we had four wheeling, you know, that really became very popular in the fifties and sixties and seventies, and people had jeeps and Ford Broncos and things like that. Well, nowadays people still drive jeeps and Ford Broncos, but they. Um, they certainly drive Jeeps the most, but there's a bunch of us who are, we, we actually, I started out as a Land Rover enthusiast. Yeah, so I, I, I started 
um, as a Land Rover enthusiast at the same time. I think I was in law school, but I was cycling the whole time and just really loved Land Rovers. And I had I had series vehicles, which are the you know the classic old ones, kind of like our ambulance here. Um, but and that was really part of it. But then I became interested in the whole overlanding movement. And an overlanding is this sort of higher end four wheeling that's largely based on exploration and based on camping. So that's the big thing is we go out, we explore, but again, it's all based around what the class four roads, these unmaintained roads that are in every single town in Vermont. And, but for that, I probably would not be into it as all at all, but the whole thing dovetailed beautifully because Vermont Overland cycling is a celebration of class four roads and Vermont Overland four by four is the exact same thing. So it's basically using these roads for what they were intended for. So these are basically class four roads or ancient roads. They've been around since most of them since the early 1800s, but they have fallen out of maintenance by the towns. They're still there as public highways and people use them as they are. There's a little bit of maintenance, culverts and bridges done here and there. Snowmobile trails cross them during their season and then many of them. And, uh, but it's just a, a massively fun thing to do. And it goes great with cycling because you can bring your bicycle, go overlanding throughout these crazy roads, park somewhere, you know, in a public place and then grab your bike and hop on your bike. And in fact, my next real thing is, and now that we're, we have this relationship, awesome partnership with Cannondale is I now have two, not one, but two Cannondale Motera um, e-bikes, Ooh, no the way. e-full suspension bikes. And that is, that is literally, that's a game changer because motorized vehicle thing, as many people can imagine, is not everybody's cup of tea and it can be offensive for some landowners and for some towns and people, things like that. The, the bicycle end of it is not. And Vermont has a very convenient recent statute that says that a, a e-bicycle governed at 20 miles per hour, which they almost all are, the ones that are sold in bike shops here, um, are bicycles. They are not motor vehicles. They do not require registration. They can go any, they're considered to be a non-motorized vehicle. So they can go on every single class four road and legal trail that there is on the map. And we have this great maps available at the, on the VTrans website. So it, it creates this exploration extravaganza. And it's like, you can get out, you you bring your, bring your e-bike on the back of your four by four, get out into the countryside, hop on your e-bike and you can go anywhere and you still get a good workout. I mean, it's it's a lot. You could just go a lot longer. Is uh-huh. the cool thing about it? I'm a huge fan of e-bikes. We've, uh, I think, the only people who really are upset by them are folks who are worried about their Zwift. I mean, uh, Strava times getting right. taken out, which right. is absolutely utterly ridiculous. Utterly ridiculous. Like, if you lost a calm to a motorcycle, well, <laughs> let your ego be be appeased, knowing that it was lost to a motorcycle. That's um, it. Once upon a time, you also went to law school and now have a very uh, successful law practice. Where does that fit into the the timeline of Peter Ballers? Yes, I mean, that was really why we came to Vermont, is I got into Vermont Law School and and uh, I really wanted to be a country squire. That was the thing. I was like, wouldn't it be cool to start my career? Because there's so many people come to Vermont and they've imported their wealth from another place or they've made their money ahead of time. And But it's like Kim and I made this crazy decision early on. Now, she's in hospitality, and she has a a rare four-year Bachelor of Science degree from UMass Amherst, which is the second or third best hotel school in the country. That's where we met. Mm -hmm. So she was able to get a job instantly at the Woodstock Inn, which is actually where she still is. And I was like, well, you've got that job. Let's move there. Let's do it now. Nice. and it's, it's awesome. I'm a real estate lawyer, so which is a much friendlier type of law. I do a little bit of litigation, only with zoning issues. 
and it's it's really friendly. I mean, basically, I've got people buying a second home, and you know, they it's 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 a it's a friendly, it's very procedure based. It's a lot of title searching. In Vermont, we have this really cool thing, and all of our all, all of our title records are in the land in the actual land records in the town. Mm-hmm. So we don't have registries of deeds, massive registries that are available online, like other most other almost every other state has now. Ours, we travel, and we have to go to this tiny little town office town clerk's office and do our title search getting out big old you know books that looks like something from you know like 17th century england and Mm -hmm. uh and be searching these land records and that's just an awesome awesomely quaint part of the deal so Mm -hmm. and that's always it's it's really that's always going to be you know i i should tell you the the reason why i love being my own boss and really wanted to be from the beginning and hanging out the shingled sort of thing i did work for a great firm early on but Located um, in Woodstock? Yeah, because my father was a textile executive in New Jersey. And okay. it, there are few industries more cutthroat than that industry. So he he worked in New York City and commuted every day two to two and a half hours each way, depending on traffic. And I watched him do this for 30 years. And all I could say to myself is, I want to do the opposite of that. Yeah. And and he was a Cornell grad, too. And, it, you know, I, I felt to say that I, after Collegiate Nationals, I transferred to Cornell. And that's where I graduated from. What was your undergrad degree in? Uh, government pre-law. Okay. So I kind of knew I, I kind of I, a brief stint trying to become an investment banker in the early nineties. And oh, thank God that didn't work. It sounds so, so lucrative and so tedious. Yes. You would have worked in the heyday. I would have been, I would have been, but it's like, and Lord knows I'd be probably very well off to this day, yeah. but you might but, therefore but have, have a nice house in Woodstock. I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, was it the goal straight away to, uh, when you went to Vermont law school, did you, did you know that yeah, real estate law was, was the direction you were going to go? You know, I did, because when I... You'll know this. You'll know this name. So when I graduated from Cornell, I graduated with Chris Peck. Yes. Who was no with kidding. Cannondale when you probably came on board with him. Yeah. So Chris was an engineering marvel, marvel at mm-hmm. Cornell, and we were on the cycling team together there. Okay. And we were very, very good friends. Well, his mother, I said, I wanted to become a, an, an attorney, and she knew a guy in Andover, Mass., which is where Chris is from and grew up. She was a real estate broker there, and she said, I know of a great lawyer there. I went to Dartmouth. You guys will be fast friends. And I met with this guy, and I was working for him that afternoon. <laughs> and uh, Andy Caffrey, who now actually owns a home on the green in Woodstock, of all, of all things. So the coincidence keeps going. But, but she got me my first job with him, and he had me doing title searches in Massachusetts. And I just loved it. I mean, I just kind of like, I think in pictures. So many times I remember somebody's parcel, parcel of real estate before I remember their name. And it's uh-huh. like, it just is something that's sort of just agree with me and so that was really where it all started it was chris peck's mom that is crazy which ultimately brought you to vermont vermont has a certain special sauce that we've talked about a tiny bit be it the general stores or the ipas or or the country squire way of life what changes have you seen in the past three decades of being a vermont squire a vermont denizen as you know, I mean, Laura and I moved here, what, not even a year ago. Um, and we love the way of life. We love the IPAs. We love the country stores. What things have you seen that we are going to see? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think a big thing, it's, it's actually remarkably the same. It's incredible how Vermont changes, even through a bad real estate market that we went through in, in 2008 through like 2011, uh-huh. which was bad. It was never that bad. You know, our properties kind of stay 
stay pretty consistent. Our market, our prices stayed strong and stable. Um, and that's one of the things I love about Vermont is the consistency of it. Yeah. And, and the, you know, just get stupid things like the aesthetics of it, the architecture, the fact that we have very few strip malls. I don't see that changing at all. And that's really, you know, we have a, many people are not, you know, one of the reasons why everyone's like, why don't you have any subdivisions in Vermont? We have very, very few. And that's yeah. because of our land use laws. But it's also because we have a dastardly anti-speculation tax. So you can't cut up land, grid it up, and sell it like you can and make a profit without having the state take most of your profits away in tax. So it's called a Vermont land gains tax. Those are things that are not going away. And they're only – one thing, though, that does concern me a little bit, and the reason why Vermont Overland is so geared towards towards promoting local businesses is we do see – that we don't – we have a significant lack of industry here. And, in Mm -hmm. fact, your business Mm -hmm. is, you know, untapped is one of the – really one of the most substantial, famous, well-known businesses that has come out of Vermont. And it's relatively new because it's so hard to run a business here. That is something that we see as a concern. And it's something that we really try to address with Vermont Overland. Everyone says, well, Vermont Overland, you you should be promoting races as a nonprofit. And I say, no. Vermont Overland is an example of a successful small business in Vermont, which is almost an oxymoron. So you you really, and that's what we're trying to do is say, not only have we been able to do it, Ted King's been able to do it, but it's also that other people can do it and you don't have to make your money on Wall Street and then come up here and buy a second home to enjoy Vermont. So what are those tangible barriers to entry that are difficult for small business for, um, you know, we saw the state of Vermont offer up those $10,000 grants for young people to move here, um, basically transfer their jobs to move to Vermont. Outside of Burlington, there aren't a ton of places for young people to find a job, or quite frankly, anybody to find a job. So with Vermont being such this magnet and gravitational, gravitationally great place to live for the lifestyle, for the pace of life, for these things, what are those barriers? Is it a tax thing? Is it a... It's all the above. I mean, it's very, it's, it's, it's a high tax thing. It's really high cost of living. It's hard to live here and make ends huh. meet without without having some sort of help financially. And and that was, you know, we, we did it on our own, and of course with school loans and everything like that. But I haven't, most guys in my shape right now at 52 years old, my, my contemporaries from Cornell are getting ready to retire. Yeah. They have banked money. We have we've gone through bad markets and things like that. We've I can't say we've ever really struggled financially, but we certainly have had to rely on mortgages, credit cards, things like that to get through the lean times. And this is with running two full-time gigs. You know, I got my full-time law practice, actually three, we got my full-time law practice. We've got Vermont Overland, which, which has, you know, does fairly, fairly well as far as, as far as paying for the habits, like the bicycles and the trucks and, and putting some money towards my kids' college education. And my wife works full-time and we're still not really banking money and we ain't going to retire anytime soon. So I think that's a big part of the problem is that we've got to create a situation where people can, young people can come in here and they, they can be given a break on whatever it is, taxes, regulation, and be helped with living costs so they can get on their feet, start these businesses and actually make a living. And right now I'm actually, I'm in the middle of a zoning appeal in Woodstock where a young family with five kids is trying to run a family farm. They want to host weddings at their family farm. They grow lavender and garlic. Mm -hmm. And the town of Woodstock is suing them in environmental court, saying, no, you can't do that. We feel that's a commercial use, despite the fact that it's agricultural and that's supposed to be exempt. That's a great example of back off people and let these people thrive.
Do you say rosemary and garlic? It's actually lavender. Lavender. Lavender, lavender and garlic. Oh, yeah. Which is great to have in weddings. It's very fragrant. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I love garlic. Uh, I'm not very familiar with the scent of lavender, but it sounds delightful. Why is... Is Montpelier the onion capital or something? Why is the Muddy Onion an event onion out of river. Montpelier? It's onion the Onion River. river. The Onion oh. River runs through it. I know, which is odd. Like, what river in Vermont would be ever have anything to do with onions? Very strange. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know. Okay. It's crazy. Um, what's, you know, you live in, well, sorry, you're in Reading now. What changes have you seen in, in Old Town Woodstock over your time? Um, my grandmother lives in Woodstock. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, in the... Shoot, I'm gonna pull this. I'm gonna say this the 70s she was there. Um, therefore, being born in 83, yeah. I have no recollection of it. But King Farm, West Woodstock, no other side, other side, Carrington Bennett. Um, oh, yeah. has, has downtown Woodstock undergone any changes in the past 30 years? I mean, it's a pretty quaint, um, Norman Rockwell downtown. What? What all has happened in Vermont there over here? Oh, I think it's it's almost exactly the same. We did we have a it's majorly based towards the tourists. The one cool thing, I mean, Woodstock is great. It, don't get me wrong, it's great for tourists. It's a great place to come, but it's it's definitely like, you know, it's not one of your one of your funky, cool, soulful places to go. Except for one thing, and a couple things. There's there's the Monver Cafe, which is actually where um, Ansel's girlfriend works, which is just a cool. European style cafe with excellent food and coffee. Sweet. And then there's Worthy Kitchen. Oh, so Worthy. The Worthy so companies, good. these guys, they start out with Worthy Burger in uh-huh. thin South Royalton, which is uh-huh. actually where Vermont Law School is. Thank freaking God that they were not there when I was in law school because <laughs> yeah. I would never have made it through law school. I would have been there every single night because the, the place is amazing. That place then, is nuts. It was introduced yep. to me by the one and only Chris Milliman of the oh, UV yes. Epics. Milliman. Yeah. Um, this place is amazing. It's like a hole in the wall. I think former train station yeah. that has the best burgers and the most ridiculous lineup of uh, of Vermont beers that, quite frankly, you can get anywhere. And yeah, it's spawned into yep. Worthy, Worthy Kitchen. Kitchen, Worthy Kitchen 2 now. And we've got Worthy Kitchen 2 up in Waitsfield. Um, it's incredible. Yeah, great, great example of small business Vermont thriving and succeeding. Cool. How about how about cycling? What have you seen much cycling growth? Throughout the state, or uh, another attack branch, yeah. is there good mountain biking in the area? The you know what there is, yes, and I've seen that. Like even in Woodstock now has the Woodstock Area Mountain Bike Alliance. So oh, it's hot damn. Wamba. It's another one of the Vimba organizations. We are seeing though, and that's a huge scene. And it's a very good question again, Ted, because that is a burgeoning, just like gravel. The mountain biking, the, the the sort of recreational mountain biking scene in Vermont mm-hmm. is outrageous. I mean, you've got so many areas. You could spend an entire summer riding pretty much in a different trail network throughout the whole summer. I mean, you've got, of course, Kingdom Trails, which is the mecca, mm-hmm. but then you've got the Waterbury Trails Wada. network. You've got... We've got Richmond Mountain Richmond. Trails right now. Exactly. Nick There's these pockets. All You've got Millstone, Mill, Mill, the Millstone Quarry and stuff in, in Barrie. What's the one? Something of the Wheel? Brotherhood yes. of the Wheel? Brotherhood of the Wheel. Fellowship. I was going to say, I don't think it was yeah. Brotherhood, yeah. Sisterhood. Um, yeah, Vermont has done an amazing job getting the resources behind the development of a contiguous mountain bike uh, network, which is super cool. Also super cool, I know very little about this one. Did you hear about this network that connects 
Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Quebec by trail. Somebody is talking about it. I have no idea where it is. Yeah, neither do I. I can't I wait to find it. I have heard something about it. I know. How cool would that be? Great. It's got to be along the northern tier, like up in the logging country, but it sounds really cool. Yeah. How about, have you heard about these, uh, these huts in northern Maine? Man, maybe not northern, but near like Carabasset, Waterville, uh, Sugarloaf area. No. Where you can fat bike through the winter and then connect and then there's oh a God. pretty amazing uh, culinary scene there. So you're in these like huts in the middle of nowhere. And there's I've somebody cooking some exquisite that. food. But you've done that. What? What? I. You know. What was this trip you did? The James Bay descent. Yes. Well, dude, that's outrageous. It was outrageous. Um, does the does the name Buck Miller ring a bell? Vaguely. Buck Miller raced for Fiorita Fruta, Chris yes, Peck team. Right. Um, raced for Spider Tech and Symmetrics, uh, Steve Bowers teams, and he is from Northern Canada in the first place. He. When he retired from cycling, he picked up a hammer and learned the craft of carpentry and moved back to northern uh, northern Quebec. I mean, sorry, northern Ontario, rather. And, you know, he's, he, he ended up being shipped out to do some projects in places like Attawapiskat. So this is this town where basically the James Bay meets um, the Hudson Bay, way, way up there in Canada. He saw the marginalization of some some communities up there and he saw the importance of you know preaching messages like hey riding a bike is actually kind of awesome and healthy and and you know good for for so many things to a to a small town small um community and so he linked in the back of his mind he linked these communities of Attawapiskat to Moosonee to Smooth Rock Falls which is the town that he was born and what better way to do it than buy a snow road, ice road, that's open only six weeks a year. <laughs> it was absolutely insane. What were the temperatures? Um, the coldest was the first day when it was in the negative mid-40s. What? Yeah. That what? was the day that I got frostbite in my nose. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Like, the best example of taking me out of my natural habitat. It was nuts. Um, yeah, camping in negative 40. Why the heck not? That is insane. It was. It was Absolutely awesome. Absolutely insane. And you did great. this, what, two weeks? Uh, two we weeks did it for about 10 days. 10 days, right. Um, yes. I mean, it was funny because I didn't want to preach. I didn't want to explain what we were doing much beforehand. I wanted the message to be out there, but yeah. I was also... There was the thought in my back of my mind, like, well, I hope I come back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Laura would really be upset. Yeah. Thankfully, I had the faith in my, my team. Uh, there were four of us total, and... All four of us are married, and, and two of them have kids, so it's not like we were looking for some dastardly excuse to go get into a dangerous scenario. All right, I've just gone through the Pave sections thrice, well, six times. We went yep. back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth. I would call them well-paved. What's your take? You gonna do more? I think that's good. Yeah, we might do, we're gonna, we can, we can, we can, uh, we can do one trip back and then run you back because we're going in that direction. I'm in no rush. You so tell we'll me. That? Let's so do let's that. Let's do that. Let's go right back and then I can, I'll be close enough to South Woodstock. So you now have in the Vermont Overland a nationwide premier event in gravel. Uh, what what kind of numbers? Are you, wait, you guys sold out immediately, right? We did, but we're cheating. I mean, we only we only sold out, and actually, it was an interesting story. So. The nitty-gritty nitty nitty of this was we wanted to create a four-day festival atmosphere around the Overland. So we started this event called Gravel Fest. And when you register for Gravel Fest, 
It's like 250 bucks. It includes four days of riding, you know, riding with the pros like Ted and, and, and getting out and learning how to use the self-nav. And there was going to be loads of courses to choose from, plus frolicking, camping at night and partying and food trucks every day. Pretty cool event in my mind. Super but, cool event. Let me I tell got you, to ride with was, Tinker Juarez last year. Yeah, right. So it's like, that was, I thought it was be really cool. The Overland ended up, and then you could just do the Overland. So you can... You can register for either one of these things. We open up registration every year, 10 a.m. on New Year's Day. Well, Overland filled so fast, it pretty much stalled the bikereg.com server, although they're not <laughs> happy with me saying that, but it did. Like, guys were like, we couldn't even, I couldn't even get on the website yeah. towards at the end of the 10 minutes that it was really filling. Um, and Gravel Fest, and that was with 500 riders, but we had to keep the numbers for Overland low because we need the real estate. We need the physical space. This all happens at my house, by the way. Right, right, right. That's what I want to yeah. get to. You have, yeah. in this premiere event, you have one of the coolest house parties <laughs> nationwide. <laughs> it's basically having everybody at the house. So we needed that real estate, and we don't have that much, you know, we have like six acres of cleared pasture. Uh -huh. So we were like, oh, man. We've used up all these spots for Gravel Fest and they're not selling. We only got about 20 people registered for the first like three hours on New Year's Day. So we decided, you know what, not the right year for Gravel Fest. We bagged that. Okay. But we ended up with only 500 riders in, in this level of, of gravel ride. It's going to fill super fast. That's why I say we were cheating. We didn't really have the numbers that the other Rasputitsa has doubled that or more. Now they're going to probably be up to 1,500 by the time their event rolls around. And of course you have 2000 or something at Land Run and mm -hmm. uh, three, three, four, 4,000 at Dirty Kansas? Uh, I think three? they're just north of three. I want to say like 3,100. Right, it was between three and four. So those are real numbers. And it's a decision because I can't fit, unless I change venue, I can't fit a whole lot more riders. We, we did another hundred right away when we pencil Gravel Fest. Mm -hmm. We are likely to do, and you're hearing it here for the first time, we're likely to do another hundred in June but that's really going to be it because we can't really park any more people than that, and we never will be able to. Pay attention, yes. fair listener. That's it. Sometime you've made in it June. this far. Yeah. This is your reward. So, <laughs> so the uh, so the thing is, is like, what do we do now? You know, we're not going to be one of these mega events, and nor can we really support that with our infrastructure. So, we kind of made a decision. We're going to stay this small, intimate kind of golden ticket ride where people are like, I got in, mm -hmm. I got in. And it's not going to be, you know, I'm never going to get to the point of Leadville and things like that where I'm, you know, having people apply for a spot and, and then have to, you know, qualify or whatever, whatever Leadville has to do now. And, and, and it's like the golden coin. What yeah. is, are you first come first serve? We are. So it's like, you have to, but it gets to the point where people are like, you know, just racing. I had a poor guy. I actually let him in. I had a guy say, I sat down on my computer at 10.04. I, I, I opened it up. I saw the page that it was it was like at 10.06, it was nearly full. I spilled my coffee. <laughs> I fumbled for my wallet to get my credit card, spilled my coffee in the process on my computer oh, and couldn't no. register. And I was like, don't worry, dude, you're in. <laughs> so, but it's, yeah, it's, it gets to the point where that becomes an issue. Um, but so just we, bring a good sob story about ruining your exactly, computer. And exactly, exactly. We really want to keep it a smaller, intimate event and keep it something that people really value. And also, it enables me to keep it very personal. You mm -hmm. know, people people send me an email about the Overland or Volmar. They get me back instantly, sure. usually pretty instantly. So it's like I want to be able to keep that. I do. Don't get me wrong. It's not like I don't have help, and I want to. I want to credit right here I'm with all my staff members. And these guys are going back and forth and back and forth mm -hmm. over this Pave sector. 20 times 
just following me and it's exceedingly boring so we can pack this thing in to make it rideable while I'm doing this podcast. So these guys are wonderful and I've got Ansel uh-huh. who does, he's, I gotta tell you folks, I've never even been on Instagram and we have seven, 9,000 followers or something now and it's all Ansel. Ansel crushes Ansel, it, he's awesome. Ansel Dickey with Vermont VT Social. If you guys are in need of a marketing, he's he's really my full-time marketing director, but he also has his own business on the side. So, and he's really Vermont Overland's only sort of quote-unquote employee. And, you know, of course, he's a kid I've known since he was 13 years old, but he's very, very talented with this stuff. And again, another example of a successful small business in Vermont yeah. is VT Social. So it's, it's, it's all part of the family. Is there... Any, what are the things that, you know, if, okay, if we talk about what makes a successful gravel event. We'll talk about, you know, really nice course, nice party afterwards, nice beer, nice food. You hit on it with the concept of doing self-nav, self-navigation, having, having the GPS right there on the, the tip of your handlebars. What are some of the other aspects that are part of a successful gravel event that aren't as knee-jerk as, oh, a killer beer afterwards and the right number of porta-potties. Although that is a key, it's a key, key factor. It's really key. BYOTP <laughs> in case you need to run into the woods. Oh, but yeah. no, you don't need to do that at Overland because you've, you've hit that on the head. So in short, without giving me a hackneyed answer, what are the successful attributes to a gravel race? Well, one of the things I like to do is and which which you can't do if you have a really long event. I have a I have a relatively short event. Like you guys come in at two hours and twenty minutes, usually two hours twenty five minutes. The lead group, which means we're throttled. You are you for are two hours flying. and twenty minutes. I mean, it's and it's really hard. But I keep it short enough that I can maintain one course and one distance mm-hmm. and one adventure. So that's sort of a big thing. And I was talking with Laura about this the other day, mm-hmm. and and I realized with your 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 eighty eighty miles is your we main got an eighty five and yeah. a forty five, and this is something I wanted to explore with you. Yeah, keep yeah, going. Yeah. So it's for me. What happens is this is. It's the the number one thing you want to foster in a gravel event is the camaraderie, and a big part of that camaraderie is the after party and the beer and the food. But really, what it is, it's the shared adventure, and mm-hmm. that's where the self nav comes in. But it's also the fact that when you have one adventure, one ride, even if people have cut secretly cut the course because they just can't go that long because it's obvious on the map that they can cut it, that's okay. But you have one ride, one adventure, and I've seen with those types of rides where you just keep the it's all one group. So the guy who's finishing six hours down is starting with Ted King. I think that's incredibly important. And they're both doing the same ride because you know what can happen after the ride is that dude can walk up to Ted King and he can say, what did you think of Pave Sector 6? <laughs> and they both have done it. And that guy is on top of the freaking world, people. When he, when he, can, when he can talk to Ted King about they both did the same thing, that guy is now a lifelong devotee of gravel. You know, he's going to be out there. He's going to want to go, you know, and, and that's the thing is, it's actually another cool segues into another very cool thing about gravel is that we all support each other because when Rooted Vermont brings in new people into gravel in early August, the first thing they're going to do is look on the bike ridge calendar and I get a call. Peter, yeah. I just did Rooted Vermont. Can I please possibly come and do the Overland? So it all it all comes around, and that's why we all support each other. So guys, I'll be right back. I'm just going to drop Ted, and I'll come back. All right, we'll see you at uh, the other end uh, with the ambulance. Word, okay, I'll see you then. Over. 
Ted wants me to say over. <laughs> Just feel safer that way. So yeah, that's it's yeah. one ride, one adventure, one experience. And that way, what happens is at the after party is that people can walk up to anybody and say, what did you think of this? Whereas when you have two distances or multiple distances, it's a little bit more stalted because people can't, Ted's not going to walk up to somebody who may not look like an elite rider and say, what did you think of Pave sector number six? Why? Because that person may not have done that route. So that's one of my big things. Normally when I, I hear from promoters to say, Jesus, I got the same exact thing you're doing, but I'm not getting anybody. And the first thing I do is I look on their bike ridge page and they've got 16 different categories and they've got four different distances. And I'm like, you've just kind of just thrown out the number one thing about gravel, which is the shared adventure. And so that's really what I kind of preach with. And I didn't make that up. That came out with Dirty 40 and the 40... Actually, 40 doesn't stand for mileage. I forget what it stands for. I think it did once upon a time. It did once, and then it was different. But, um, which you've also won the first 3040, didn't no, you? No, I did. Second. I did Rasputitsa, which was the first year they did Rasputitsa after yeah. having done 3040, and I came in second to a young whippersnapper named Ansel, Ansel Dickey. That's right, exactly. Yeah. That's right. Um, somebody, somebody did. Well, speaking of camaraderie and hosting a party and, and having a great event, you literally give the shirt off your back yes. as as an award which i think is killer i think i think not having prize money i'm a fan of this concept well i shouldn't say that because i also like winning money however i think it's cool to win a novel unique one of a kind thing be it a belt buckle or a cowboy hat or a shirt off your back you have a whole lineup of these shirts that are really cool flannel and uh well, with the Vermont Overland patch. Well, with a patch on it. Yeah. So my mother-in-law sews these patches on these, and I actually buy all these, I buy all these plaid shirts from thrift stores. <laughs> so I'm supporting, you know, thrift stores. It just, it's a feel-good, warm and fuzzy thing all around. But I've just noticed that, and that, believe me, in first year, Anthony Clark won. He got a $1,000 check, this big, huge, like, oh. NASCAR-looking check. And he's like, oh, my God, I've never won so much money. And that was gratifying. But Were you I, pulling, sorry, to, to draw a $1,000 check, were you using yeah. uh, entry fees, or do you have any? No, I actually had Long Trail Beer as a sponsor that okay. year, and they were great. And yeah. Although, it, you know, it was, it was just, it was a little too old road racing type commercial-like, and I re we all realized, actually, we all evolved, all the gravel promoters, that we really don't need to do that, and that will create um, a situation of people, you know, I had people, I had pros coming in who were just chasing that prize money, and they weren't interested in the race for any other reason. And that's just not what we're into. And I'd almost rather just not have, I want the pros here that we really care about, who really yeah. care about the sport, care about gravel, which is what I've got. So, but it is like, I mean, I the, the cornier, the better. Like I had, I was like, I live in a tiny little town. We only have one business in the, like at the store at the center of town. So I'm asking the town clerk, I'm like, what business in Reading can I buy a gift from or something that I can use for prizes? I want a locally made prize. And she said, well, you know, Zonia, who runs the local general store, makes her own jewelry out of like basically just like junk jewelry items. She takes apart older <laughs> jewelry items and she makes her own stuff. I was like, oh, oh my God, that's perfect. So what does Ted get on the on the podium? He gets a blingy homemade necklace, which is beautiful. It is like he's he's got that and he's got the shirt off my back. So they all the men's and women's Tina Severson. Um, they both got shirts, plaid shirts, and luckily I had one that was somewhat small, so that I can't well, fit into yeah. it. 
Um, Best yet. Awesome. You give me the shirt off your back, and then we, after he decided that maybe I should get a different size, we went to your laundry room. Yes. And pulled the shirt <laughs> out of the dryer. Say, you know what? This one's even better. <laughs> this one's even better. So I've got like literally dozens of these shirts around that, and they're very special. I give them away for um, raffle prizes for charities, and I give them away as prizes at the Overland. We don't actually sell them. Uh, at least not yet. I yet. mean, I don't think that's going to happen, but it, it could. Because, um, again, don't forget, we're not... The whole thing about this gravel thing is that... Here's another thing, guys. Is that so often people are like, what charity? What charity? I'm like, I do give a lot of these. I give, you know, the the Overland um, is a major contributor to the Reading West Windsor Food Shelf. And Volmar is a, is a major contributor to Escutney Outdoors, which is our local trail ab- advocacy group. And they also help with all the public trails at Mount Escutney. So I do do that. But 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 mark my words, I mean, make no mistake about it. This is a for-profit company, and it's something where I, I want to be able to say to people that it is not a dirty word to have commerce and a for-profit thing in the gravel world, because what it does is it, I better have, if I'm gonna charge as much as I do for an entry fee, I better be able to stand behind that and say, you are my customer, I value you, and you better be getting value for your dollar, just like any other business out there. And I think that really can work for Gravel, is that we, for the first time, and I, I gotta tell you, and that was the, my, my only real problem with USA Cycling, is that they always felt that they were, it was a privilege for you, that you should feel it's a privilege to show up at their events. At, at a USA Cycling event, not all, they're not all. There were great promoters who didn't make you feel that way for sure, but by and large, that was the feeling. Especially when you have officials who are, you know, sort of, especially in the junior ranks, I had officials that were yelling at the kids all the time, and it was one of my major pet peeves. That is not the case with Gravel. With Gravel, you are our customers, we value you, we love you, and we are gonna treat you like valued customers. And I think that's one of the big reasons why Gravel's doing so well. People show up and they feel like the bottom line of it is, not only is there the camaraderie, but they feel like they're getting value for money. And I think that's a really important thing. Man. I don't even know how to follow up Sorry, on that. Sorry, no, that you was just perfect. unleashed. I mean, there are a few things that please me more than giving me a freaking microphone, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think I'm surrounded by CBs? <laughs> and a disco ball. And a disco ball. That's fantastic. Um, no, it's a, it's a terrific perspective. I mean, people are going to put their money where their mouth is. They say they like gravel. They're going to put their money on the vents that they like the most. And much like a really good IPA... I think it's interesting to think of this era that we're in where, you know, you backtrack 10 years ago and you might say, you know what, maybe we've reached peak IPA. There's we, there's nothing else you can do in IPA. Whereas now, fast forward these 10 years, all these nano brews and micro brews are doing so many really cool creative things. It's the same thing happening with gravel. Like it's hard to find a free weekend free of an event. Yes, especially um, in Vermont. And then trying to do them unique and better and cooler and... Uh, you know, just knock each event out of the park. That's right. But it's happening. The events are bigger and better and more fun. So it's cool that the customer can put their money where their mouth is and say, I want to go to so-and-so event. I want to go to VO. I want to go to Rooted Vermont. Hot damn. Well, as we rally back to the South Woodstock general store, country store, I feel like I've had all my questions answered. Anything else from your end? No, but this is great. And Ted, I will say, you know, I've noticed 
you not only do the big events, but you're also there out at the small events. And I just want to let you know, and I've not been able to say this, and I again, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to blow smoke up your ass, but it really means a lot. I've seen you at the tiny little events for people, and I've seen you lugging untapped jugs all over the place, and and it's 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 for me, that's what means so much. It's like it's like here's a guy who's not only a superstar, and you really are, and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. Gravel is not about being. It's still being about competitive. You still can be wicked competitive, but it's also about the fact that you are, you are touchable and you're a person who is approachable and you are somebody who, who is is involved in our community to to help everybody. And uh, I think that really it really hits home. And and now you've got Laura. You're like the dynamic duo. So you guys <laughs> are going around to all these events and you really add to the color of these of not only the local events, but also the national events. And I think that's awesome. Man, it, oh man. It's like we're, we're all in one, and that's one thing is we all preach the tribe, but it really is one big tribe. Well, that means a lot, especially coming from you. Um, yeah, from our very first foray into gravel, what struck me was the community. So certainly it's not a... I go to any event of all sizes because I purely find them fun. Um, Big events, small events, national caliber events, super ho-dunk local events. And, and I think so long as Gravel continues doing what it's doing, I'm going to, you will definitely keep seeing Laura and me at these events. So awesome, man. it's awesome for us. Let's keep growing the sport and making it super cool. Fantastic. Peter, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Ted. Hey, y'all. Thanks very much for listening and being part of this King of the Ride community. Thanks goes out to Peter for taking the time and sharing some of his insight on today's episode. What, now with three decades, four decades, with cycling as an instrumental part of his life, Peter has no shortage of information to share. In particular, I really like his take in today's conversation about self-navigation as it relates to building community while out on the ride. I really think that this does have potential to take off, to remove, as he's dubbed it, sign pollution and build cohesiveness in gravel events, I think that's a really cool concept. So stay tuned for that. And lastly, thanks goes out to Icor for supporting this episode. Icor is designed by athletes for athletes. They particularly cue in on the scientific approach for their recovery enhancing hemp extract to help you perform at your best. You can experience these meaningful improvements such as better sleep, better relaxation between training sessions and astute mindfulness by trying them out. Please head over to icorlabs.com, save 15% by using the code king of the ride. That is all one word at checkout. Folks, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, please enjoy the ride.